We are going to change some things around this morning. And the reason is, is that we are going to have a baptism this morning. And I want to prepare you for that. Um, we're going to actually have a baptism here. And that's why there's one bowl here. There's water in that. We're going to actually do a sprinkling this morning um, because the person that we're going to baptize cannot go into the baptistry, all right? And so uh, I'm going to preach, and then I'll introduce all of that to you just so you know kind of what's, what's happening, what's going on here now uh, in the sake, for the sake of time and such. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And um, we're going to study God's Word today. And we're actually going to try to sort of focus ourselves on um, one aspect of this book and, and one phrase almost of this section that we're in. So let me just read the passage that we're, we have been studying and where we're at. And, uh, and then we'll pray together and then we'll um, study God's word together. It says this, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, or one new humanity from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now verse 19 is where we're going to focus on the, the beginning of the verse today. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray and ask that you would help us. We pray that you would transform our minds, that you would help us to think the way you think, and to think your thoughts after you. We pray that you will help us to think about ourselves the way you want us to think. We pray that you will form our identity. We pray that you would please sanctify us, grow us, transform us. We pray, Father, that what you ordained would be written in Ephesians 2 would impact our lives here now, in our world, in our lives now. Please, we pray. Please come by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please help us, we pray, to know the rich blessings that you have given us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As you remember, our, uh, Paul's goal 
in so much of what he has written right now, in all that he has written actually up to this point, Paul's goal has been, number one, to glorify God by explaining the amazing things that God has done, to bring glory to God. Paul started this letter out by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he started showing us how God has blessed us by grace, how God has shown mercy, how God has exercised power, how God has rescued us, all that God has done. And so Paul's primary purpose is to glorify God and to give praise to what he's done in this wonderful and rich salvation. And then secondly, Paul, what Paul has been doing, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as God has inspired this book to us, God, Paul has been trying to help us to understand who, in fact, we are, to understand our status, to understand our privileges, to understand all that God has done for us. And Paul's view is that eventually... He's going to get to the point to show us that if we understand this, we will live it out. You see, too many preachers, too many churches, too many books, too many things to go, go very quickly to, well, Christian, here's how you're supposed to act. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's the do's. Here's the don'ts. Paul never does that. Paul lays a rich, rich theology of who you actually are, that when you get to the point of, well, how should I live my life, it almost becomes self, self-evident what you should do. And that's where we're going to be, that's what we're going to do so far. We're going to look at this. For instance, Paul's eventually going to tell us the impact that all of these things should have on our life, but he's not even close yet. In fact, I started this series in January 8th, on January 8th. We've preached through 20 weeks of the Bible. That's almost half a year, 20 weeks. And so far, there's only been one commandment to telling a Christian to do something, and that's been pretty mild, and that's verse 11, the very first verse we read here. It says this, therefore remember. That's the only imperative so far in the book of Ephesians, and we're not going to get another one, a serious one, until uh, uh, Ephesians 4. Remember what you once were. That's, what, that's all Paul's told us to do at this point. The rest of it has been what God has done, this rich salvation, who we are, and our identity in Christ Jesus. But you see, all of this is super practical because we live in a world right now where the culture is so confused and so fixated on our identity and self-identity and defining ourselves and expressing ourselves and figuring out who we are. And, 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 and quite frankly, folks, we as a culture are doing a terrible job at this. We're confused. We don't know who we are, and we're trying to identify, and we're trying to figure out how we can all do this. And the Bible has all the answers here. And all we have to do is just, is just understand them and embrace them. And once again, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to focus on something that Paul says, this is who you are. Imbibe it. Drink it in. Let it form you. Be who, the, who you are. Live it out. That's what we're going to look at today. So let's talk about the immediate context. In this passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul begins by talking about the fact the major thing is that Jesus Christ has taken the major division in the world, the people of God and the people who are not the people of God, the Jews and the Gentiles. He has taken those two, that two division, he's broken that division down, he's brought them together, and he has made, created one new humanity, one new body of people. And that is the church. That's who you are. You and I are this one new body. And now he's going to work out what that looks like and what that means. 
And that's, so he's, that verses 11 through 18 is Paul describing, I, we've preached through weeks on this, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just summarizing it here. He has made one new man, and we are one uh, people, people of God. Now, look at verse 19. So Paul says, so he's laid that out. He's now going to draw out the implications of that. And so he says, now, in light of what I just said, therefore, because of what I just said, and then he says this, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. That's all we're going to look at today. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Now, earlier he said you were strangers and foreigners. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, remember, this is his only command so far, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens, that's that idea of strangers and foreigners, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, but now in Christ Jesus you have been brought near. That's what he says in verse 13. So then he drops down and he says, listen, on verse 19 he says, listen, understand therefore, you are no longer strangers, you are no longer foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are part of this commonwealth now, a new commonwealth, a new humanity, the people of God, you are part of that. You are citizens with the saints. Another way that he could say this, and he does say this, is this. You are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Citizens of the kingdom of God. Now let's think about and let's work out what that means, that you and I are citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, it was extremely important back when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, it was extremely important to be a citizen of Rome. Rome was actually the Roman government, the Roman kingdom, the, the Roman uh, empire was truly, and still is to this day, by the way, one of the greatest human empires that ever existed. The Roman Empire existed for centuries upon centuries. Some say up to a thousand years. The Roman Empire existed. Adolf Hitler thought that he was going to have an empire that would last for a thousand years and take over the world. And he did a really good job at almost taking over the world, that wicked man. But his empire lasted 12 years. Okay? The United States of America is a little over 200 years old, a little over 200 years old. The, the present communist government uh, is... Uh, the Soviet Union uh, uh, ruled over half the world at one point, and they said they were going to last forever, and they lasted for 70 years. Rome did do it. Rome, Rome was huge. Rome impacted so much. And to be a Roman citizen was to be a, a citizen of one of the greatest kingdoms that ever existed on earth. And back then, it was the greatest kingdom. There was one superpower, and it was Rome. And Ephesus was very much a part of that. I turned to the New Bible Dictionary this, this, this week to read up on Ephesus, and then I, I, I'm, so I'm going to give you the first few sentences. Listen to what it said. Ephesus, the most important city in the Roman province of Asia, on the west coast of what is now Asiatic Turkey. It was situated at the mouth of the Keister River between the mountain range of Croesus and the sea. Now listen to this. A magnificent road, 11 meters, that's like 33 feet, 11 meters wide, 
and lined with columns, ran down through the city to the fine harbor, which served both as a great export center at the end of the Asiatic caravan route and also as a natural landing point for, from Rome. This was the most important Roman citizen, uh, city in all of Asia. And, and there was this, this beautiful street and all of these columns that went all the way down from this, down the main road all the way to the harbor. The harbor was busy with all kinds of caravans coming uh, from the east, from India and from, from, from Babylon and all that area uh, then, and, and, and coming into Ephesus. And it was going out to Rome. Things were coming in from Rome. It was a Roman colony. And not only that, they had this huge, massive amphitheater, which is still present there today. And of course, the great temple of Artemis, which was the, one of the seven wonders of the world. This was a magnificent place to be from. This was a magnificent place to be a part of, and they had all of the privileges and rights and status and prestige of being Roman citizens, and that was huge. That was huge back then. In fact, I want to show you how huge that was. Uh, let's look in Acts chapter 22. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is kind of semi-arrested uh, because a riot broke out while he went into the temple. A riot broke out, and so then uh, the Roman government, the uh, Romans grabbed him and said, what, the, what is going on? What are you doing? And Paul says, let me speak to these people. I'll calm them down. And he did. He started telling his testimony of how he came to Jesus until he used a word, and this will help you to understand why this whole Jew and Gentile thing was so massively important as Paul was showing that Christ brought it all together. In verse 21, it all was calm. It all was working. Until verse 21, Paul says, Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you afar from here to the Gentiles. And that was it. Boom. Gentiles. As soon as he said that word, look at verse 22. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, that the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging. That means they were going to beat him. They were going to beat him to get the truth out of him so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And all of a sudden, the attitude in that room changed dramatically. Verse 26, then the centurion, this is no, no, no low-level guard, this is a centurion. Then the cent, when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, so this guy's over centurions, and said, take care of what you do, for this man is a Roman. And then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, with a large sum of money, I obtained this citizenship. He wasn't born a Roman. He bought his citizenship. But Paul said, but I was born a citizen. And then immediately, those who were about to examine him, that means they were about to beat him with whips, all the Roman soldiers that were around, withdrew from him. Whoa, whoa. They back off. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. This guy was in trouble already. You don't treat a Roman citizen like that. A Roman citizen has rights and privileges and is to be respected. And you are, you, 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 as you all know, it was illegal to, you couldn't crucify a Roman. That was illegal. Crucifixion was too disgusting for a Roman. 
Now, it's interesting. Notice the word that's used here where the man says in verse 28, I have obtained this citizenship. It's the Greek word politeia. And we get lots of words from that. We get politics. We get polis, which means city. We get body politic from it. We get metropolitan from it. Uh, and, and, and it all refers to this, this, this sort of political, as it were, group of people that are gathered together. And so it can be translated citizens, commonwealth, citizenship, city, all of that. It's only used four times in the entire New Testament. Here's one of them right there. Citizenship. Citizen. It's used two times, though, if you go back to Ephesians 2, in the chapter that we're studying. Two times it's used there. It's used once in verse 12, where it's translated in the New King James, commonwealth. It says, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth, politeia of Israel, the, the body politic, that you weren't a citizen of Israel. And then it's used in our verse, verse 19, he says, but therefore you were no longer, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. You are fellow citizens with the saints or with the holy ones or with the set apart ones. And then, of course, it's used in most beautifully, if you just want to flip over to Philippians, the next book, chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul says this, Paul, the Roman citizen, says this, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now notice here, Paul, the Roman citizen, who had rights and privileges and the prestige of being a Roman citizen, now talks about another citizenship that is better than the Roman citizenship, that is superior to it, that has his ultimate allegiance, and that is the kingdom of God. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are citizens. This one humanity is the kingdom of God, and you are a citizen of that, a citizen of the kingdom of God. And what is this? What does this mean, the citizen of the kingdom of God? What is this kingdom of God? Well, we've just finished over the last several years studying the book of Matthew, and the kingdom of God came out very, very evident in that. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, Mark begins his book, and the very first red letters in Mark chapter 1, the very first thing that he records coming out of Jesus' mouth is this. This is Jesus saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice Jesus' message. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. And to get into this kingdom, you repent and you believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel, and you are in a new Politeia, a new people, a new humanity, a new kingdom, a new government, a new political reality, the kingdom of God. You're in it. And this was explosive, by the way. You'll remember when we were studying the book of Matthew and how I called it the, I called it until I got my senses about me, I called it the upside down kingdom. I said, Jesus' kingdom turns everything upside down. It's a kingdom of grace, not of works. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of, of where you love even your, your enemies. It's a kingdom where, where loving people, loving your neighbors yourself, doing to others what you would have them to do. It's a kingdom of holiness and righteousness. Your holiness is to be greater than the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said. It's a kingdom where the greatest people in the kingdom are not the people who wield power. He says that's, that's the way the Gentiles do it. It's the people who serve. The greatest in the kingdom are the servants. And Jesus, the king, shows that by, by putting a robe around him and washing his disciples' feet. It's an upside-down kingdom, 
But actually, it's not. It's the right-side-up kingdom. We in the world have got it all turned upside down. But then there was something disruptive about this kingdom, something that was disruptive. And that disruptive thing, one of the things that we saw about it, is what caused the riot in the temple when Paul showed up. And that was that the Jews' attitude was, the Gentiles are on the outside. We're on the inside. We're the people of God. We have the covenants. We have the promises. We have the Bible. We have it all. And Jesus is about to explode that and say, no, the kingdom of God is way bigger than you. It's going to absorb the believers in Israel, but it's also going to be Gentile. It's going to be around the whole world. It's going to be a worldwide kingdom. Jesus tells a story of a vineyard and, and the man sets up the vineyard and then he rents it out and then he leaves and then when he goes to get the fruit from it, uh, they, kill his, they beat up his servants and then they kill his son. And at the end of that, in Matthew 8, Jesus says this. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, keep that up. I, I got ahead of myself. In, in Matthew 8, a Gentile centurion, Roman centurion, shows more faith than Jews do in Jesus. And look at what it says here. When Jesus heard it, the centurion saying, you don't have to come to my house, you can just say the word. Jesus, he marveled, Jesus marveled, and said to those who followed, assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, that's outside of Israel, many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, those are the Jews who claimed they were in the kingdom but showed no righteousness. They did not repent. They did not believe. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then later, Jesus tells this parable of how the vineyard keepers killed the son. And then Jesus said these explosive words in Matthew 21. He said, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. Who's the you in that context? It is the Jewish leaders. The kingdom of God will be taken from you, Israel, as it were, and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, notice that line. He uses the word, the kingdom of God, and he equates it to a nation. It will be given to a nation. Who is this nation? This nation that will bear fruits. Who is that nation? Well, Peter helps us with this in 1 Peter chapter 2. When Peter says this, and here he's talking to the church. He's talking to the kingdom of God. He's talking to the Jews and Gentiles. He's talking to you and me. He says this, you, plural, youns, you all, but you are a chosen generation. Right back to Ephesians 1, chosen before the foundation of the world. A royal priesthood. In the kingdom of God, you don't have a priesthood. You are all priests. Everybody is a priest in the kingdom of God, okay? A holy nation. The kingdom of God is a nation, an ethnos, a people, a nation. Nation is probably the best translation here. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. So the kingdom of God is a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people, the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And that's why in, when John begins the book of Revelation, he could say something like this. In Revelation 1.6, talking about Jesus Christ, who made us a kingdom. There's, the, there's this idea of a citizenship. Priests... All of us are priests. 
To his God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Jesus Christ has formed a kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's that one new humanity. Jew and Gentile. It's one new humanity. Repent and believe. Those who believe the gospel. Those who have been chosen. Those who have been called in. Those who have had their life changed. Well, how do you become a member of this kingdom? How do you become a member of this kingdom? Well, it's interesting. You know, when Paul was, wrestling, uh, was, was in that discussion with that Roman centurion, as they're tying him up to beat him, the centurion says, I paid good money to be in this kingdom. Well, in one sense... A high price was paid for us to get into this kingdom. We were bought with a price, the very life and blood and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, in one sense, bought our citizenship. But there's another sense when Paul says, well, I was born into the kingdom, that that's true too. We must be born into this kingdom by a dramatic new birth. John 3, 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then a few verses later in John 3, 5, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so this kingdom of God is, is growing. This kingdom of God Jesus has started. And people are being miraculously born of the Spirit, born anew, changed and transformed by the sovereign power and grace and glory of God and brought into this kingdom, forgiven of all of their sins, made righteous with God through Christ, united to Christ, becoming one in Christ, becoming one body, and becoming this kingdom, the kingdom of God. And let me say to you now, let's start trying to think clearly about this. The kingdom of God is the greatest kingdom the world will ever know. It is greater than Rome. It is greater than the Holy Roman Empire. It is greater than England ever was, even though England could say that the sun never set on the British Empire. It's greater than Russia. It's greater than the Soviet Union ever was. It's greater than the People's Republic of China is. It's greater than the United States of America. It is the greatest kingdom, the greatest superpower, the greatest nation the world will ever know and will, in fact, encompass the world. In the book of Revelation, in verse, chapter 14, verse 17, uh, I'm sorry, in Revelation 11, 15, it says this. Then the seventh, I'm sorry, Matt, I, I, I'm sorry, Ben, I really screwed you up there. Okay, Re Revelation 11, 15 says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. That's, of course, the book of Revelation. Here's the end of time. It's the seventh one. And therefore, the loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world. Some of your Bibles say the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This, is, this makes Hitler laughable. This is a kingdom that will reign, a king that will reign, and a kingdom that will reign forever and ever and ever. This is the greatest kingdom, the greatest superpower the world will ever know. This is the kingdom that Daniel saw. Daniel, remember Daniel? He saw this vision, and he saw this huge, huge idol, as it were, this huge statue. And the statue was gold and silver and bronze, and then a mixture of iron and clay. And it represented the great kingdoms of the world at that point. It represented Babylon and Assyria and the Medes and Persians, and then the Roman kingdom that was coming. And this great colossus, this great colossus was there, destroying everything that was in its feet. It was like a monster killing and taking over the world and torturing and tormenting the world. And all of a sudden, this little rock 
that was not hewn by human hands, this little rock appears, this little stone appears, and smashes the feet of this kingdom. And all of a sudden, just like the Twin Towers, this kingdom just crumbles. All of the kingdoms of the world crumble in this big billow of dust. And then the rock Daniel sees grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows to become this massive mountain that takes over the whole world. And the rock, of course, is Jesus. And the mountain, of course, is his kingdom. And his kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever. This is the kingdom. This is the political reality. This is the nation. This is the government. This is God's doing. And this should form our identity. You know why? Because you are in this kingdom. In fact, not only are you in this kingdom, you are this kingdom. You and I are this kingdom. We are citizens of this kingdom. This kingdom should be and should form our identity. See what Paul's doing here in verse 19? He's forming their identity. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God. You are fellow citizens with all of the holy ones. You are part of the holy kingdom. This is your kingdom. This is your people. This is your nation. This is your identity. This is who you are, the kingdom of God. It should not only form our identity, it should be the first thing that we pray about. Listen to how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May your name be sanctified and kept holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Spread this kingdom. Advance this kingdom. Take over the world. Take over the nations. And only after that do we get to our own individual needs. Oh, by the way, give us this day our daily bread. This kingdom is to be the number one thing that we seek and do in our lives. In Luke chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says this, but seek the kingdom. Some of your Bibles will say, seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things, food, clothing, happiness, everything else, all that will be added to you. Don't seek those things. The Gentiles seek those things, Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom that is being built here. It has been formed by Jesus. It has been purchased by Jesus Christ. It is led by Jesus Christ. He is the king, the king of all kings, the king of the kingdom. And it is a kingdom of holiness. It is a kingdom of peace. It is a kingdom of joy. And Paul says this. In Romans 14, 17, Paul says this. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness. It's a holy kingdom and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Bible refers to it as the kingdom of light. John likes to talk about this. The light has come. Darkness can't overcome it. The light has come and darkness is receding. You are light. Live as children of the light. Jesus said you are the light of the world. You are the light and you're to go. And don't be a city set on a hill. Don't, don't put your light in. Let your light so shine before men. You were, once were darkness, Paul likes to say, but you are now light and live that out. Notice this in Ephesians 5. Now, again, now I'm jumping ahead to stuff Paul's going to tell us to do. Paul hasn't gotten there yet, but I'm jumping ahead just to show you the implications of how this works out. Notice what he says in Ephesians 5. First of all, he says in verse 5, 
For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This is a holy kingdom. This is a holy kingdom. If you decide to set your life in just a, a, a pathway of consuming and living in sin, you're not going to be, that, you're not a kingdom member. That's not what it means. But now notice what Paul says about them. Look at verse 8. For you, plural, youns, you all, for you were all were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And here's the implication. See, he, he's forming their identity, isn't he? This is who you are. He's not saying be this. You were this. You are this. Now you are light. Now, what's the implication? Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. You turn a light on and boom, all of a sudden you see things clearly. And that's what he's talking about here. Then he goes on to say this, verse 14. Therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Then verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he talks about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, making melody, giving thanks, submitting to one another in the fear of God. But notice here, Christians are to be light. And what God is doing is he is sending his kingdom of light out into the world. And that's who you are. That's who I am. We're to go into the world and we're to be kingdom people. We're to live for the kingdom. We're to live identified with the kingdom. We're to live as kingdom citizens. We're to bring honor to our kingdom by the way we live, by the way we act. Let me give you some illustration of this. Imagine somebody is in the workplace. We've all been in the workplace. We all know this. I wasn't just a pastor my whole life. I was in the workplace. We know what it means to be in the workplace. And imagine you're in the workplace and either the boss or somebody else tells you, listen, we're going to fudge on this a little bit. We're going to cheat on this a little bit. No, nobody needs to know we're going to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do something that's, that, that, let's, we're gonna basically going to cheat these people out. And the Christian says, I can't do that. I can't do that. He said, God would not be pleased with me. I can't do that. that that's not, I, I, you know me, you know I'm a Christian. I follow God. I, I can't do that. That's not right. I, you're going you're gonna to either have to have somebody else do that or you're going to have to fire me. I can't do that. Now, what, have you, what has that person just done? They have shined the kingdom light in that. And they have actually manifested something. See, that's it. look what Paul's saying in verse 8. He's saying, he's saying that we should expose their things by manifestation of the light. The light is just meant, and that person has just been exposed as a cheater and a liar. Now, he may not like that, and that's part of the uncomfortableness of being in the kingdom. But nevertheless, that's what kingdom, that's how the kingdom light shines. Or let's say something else happens in the workplace. Let's say there's a group of people over here and they don't like the group that, that you're working in or I'm working with. And this group of people over here, they do something that is really, really bad to our group. 
Maybe they, they, they take credit for a work that we did. Maybe they get all the credit, they get raises, they get all the recognition for something we did. Maybe they badmouth us or something like this, and our group is steaming mad at them, and our group hates them, and our group is fomenting all kinds of how they're going to get back to them and everything, and they turn to you and they say to the Christian, what? and the Christian says, you know what? I'm kind of not tracking with you on this. I'm kind of not here with you on this. I'll tell you why. I feel bad for them. I feel bad for their deception. I feel bad for their, their greediness. I, I feel bad for them. And you know what, guys? I, I'm going to pray for them. And, and I really do love them. I, I care about them. I'm going to pray for them. And you know what? I've just decided that I'm going to forgive them. Pow! The light. Kingdom light just shone in that place. And it exposed the darkness. And it exposed what's in the darkness. I'll give you a third one. You're in the workplace. Somebody comes up to you and says, dude, have you been down to advertising yet? You said, well, yeah, I've been back and forth down to advertising. You know, I have to go down there for work. Have you seen who they hired? That chick is amazing. Look at that body. Next time you go down there, check her out. And the Christian says, you know what? I, I don't approach women like that. I don't, I don't. I don't approach women like that. I don't think it's right to just look at a woman as just a body. I, I, I don't, no, I'm not going to do that. And in fact, the Christian may say, by the way, have you met that woman? He says, she's a delightful young woman. She's just newly married. She loves her husband. She's very intelligent. She does her job really well. She's a delight. And God doesn't want me to look at her with desire. God wants me to look at her as a person. And she's a delightful person. Bam! Kingdom light just shined in that place. And that's what it means that Jesus is spreading his kingdom. But it's not just that. It's other things. It's people who have the audacity to have joy. The kingdom of God is joy. It's people who in a miserable world that seems to be falling apart and everybody hates everybody, they love people. And they're joyful. And in a world where everybody thinks that everything is doom and gloom and everything is bad, they have hope and they have peace and they have confidence and courage as they look forward because they have a God who's going to take care of them and provide for them. And, and, and they, they, they want to win the world and they want to, 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 the other world to come into the kingdom. And, and then you have these, these little colonies of the kingdom these little colonies where the kingdom is, is, is evident, very evident on earth, and those are called churches. And in these churches, you have these kingdom people gather, and they love each other, and they support one another, and they encourage one another, and they're like a family. And it feels like the joy and the, and the holiness and the peace and the, and the happiness and the confidence and the faith of the kingdom of God is here. It's in the world, and it's seen, and that's what we're to be. We're to be kingdom people. And so let me say this by way of application. Here's our application. Here's, here's one of them. I'm going to give two applications. They're going to be very different, but here's the first one. Number one, look at what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2, and you realize, what's the application here? I think the application here is this. We should be in awe. We should be in awe. I am in this kingdom. I am in this kingdom. I am here. I'm in. I have a great king. 
The king of all kings, the holy one, the, the king who sacrifices his life for his own people, who lays down his life for us, the king who died on my behalf, who took my sins, who died upon the cross for me, the king who rose from the dead, the king who defeated death, the king who is king of all kings and lord of all lords, the king who is going to rule and he's going to be everything that I would ever hope for in a political leader, a kingdom who's righteous, a king who's righteous and compassionate and wise and infinitely smart and intelligent and a king is going to rule with compassion and love and care and justice and righteousness. I'm in this kingdom. I'm in this kingdom. We have a great capital, the heavenly Jerusalem who will come down from heaven and God will dwell in our midst. We have a great land, this kingdom. It's, it's how people, this is how people brag about their kingdom. We have a great land, a new heavens and a new earth. All of the universe will be ours one day. We will have great glory. He says, Paul says, we are citizens of the kingdom, waiting for Jesus who would transform our lowly bodies to be glorious like his. We have a great history. It involves Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and Paul and Peter and James and all of the great saints that have went on before it. And we have a beautiful, glorious kingdom. And how did we get into this kingdom? How did this happen to us? God's grace, unmerited love, Unconditional sovereign election. God pouring out his spirit upon us and causing us to be born anew. God enabling us and changing our will so that we love the king and we, and we believe upon him. And we repented of our sins. We turned away from them and we turned to our God. No wonder this should be number one in our lives. No wonder this should form our identity. No wonder this should mean everything to us. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Now... I would like to make one more application, and it's going to be a bombshell. In fact, you may not like me after this. But I need to be faithful to the word of God, and you liking me is, I love the fact that you love me, but that ain't the goal here. <laughs> the goal here is to honor King Jesus. And so let me say this. Let me warn us today, us Christians today, in America today, let me warn us of a great danger. Let me warn you of a great danger. The history of the church has shown that the church historically falls into a great, great error when the, it, it combines together the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. When it combines them together in this unbiblical blending of church and state, king and church. It happened to Rome. In the third, in this, the, the, the apostles come, they start sharing, and then they die off, and then, and then the church grows and grows and grows in the Roman kingdom. And the Roman kingdom tried to stamp it out, and they butchered those people. They butchered them. The, the history of the second century is butchering Christians. It didn't work. The church kept growing and growing and growing until in the third century, one of the Caesars, one of the heads, Constantine, became a Christian. And at that point, things just went downhill real fast. All of the so-called bishops became political leaders. Archbishops became political leaders. People were appointed archbishop when they were six years old. People were appointed bishops. Popes had 13 illegitimate children. They were, they became, it all became politicized. The church and state became politicized. And they had the concept of the Christian nation. The Christian nation. In a Christian nation, it's assumed that everybody is a Christian. In a Christian nation, you must all be baptized into that. In a Christian nation, you taxed people so that the tithe was actually taxed. 
And they did it in Great Britain under King Henry VIII. They did it in Germany under the Lutherans. They did it in France under the Catholics. They did it in Puritan New England under the Congregationalists. They did it in the colony of Virginia under the Anglican Church. And in America, Christians have blurred the lines between the kingdom of God and the, and the nation of America. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. It may sound very controversial, but I want you to listen. Hear me out. I, you know me well enough by now to, and if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer, but here's what I'm going to say. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. America has never been a Christian nation, but there is such thing as a Christianized nation. Now, I'm going to make a distinction here because it's very important for where I'm going. A Christian nation, I take that back. There is one Christian nation. But let me describe what a Christian nation would be. A Christian nation would be, and this is what I'm saying historically in the United States, in, in America or in any other, any other country, there's never been a true Christian nation. It would be a nation where every official from the president to the prime minister to the cabinet to the Senate to the Congress to the justices would all be deeply committed godly Christians. It would be where every citizen, every citizen was a mature godly Christian. There's never been a Christian nation except one, the kingdom of God. But there has been Christianized nations. And what are Christianized nations? They are nations where the church is healthy, where the gospel has spread, and it has impacted people to such an extent that those people have lived out the kingdom of God in their lives and in their culture and in their society, and they have affected culture in such a way that Christian values have flown through, have gone through the culture. That's a Christianized nation. And so let me draw by way of application this. The church's mission, the kingdom of God's mission, is not to make America a Christian nation. When we make it our goal to make America a Christian nation, as people are speaking today, the focus then shifts on the church. The focus then becomes this, voting, getting people listed to vote, passing laws, rallies, protests, Christian action committees, lobbying, money, shouting, anger, power making this a Christian nation, passing laws to make people act in certain ways. This nation, you'll say, but wait a minute, Todd. When this nation was, every community had churches. Every community, when, when, when the frontier was opened up, the Baptists were there, the, the Methodists were there. They were starting, and you're right, you're absolutely right. But you know who was there before the Baptists and the Methodists? The saloons and the brothels. And the power-hungry uh, people who, who oppressed people to get, to get railroads built and steel factories made. And, and, and so th this, this nation. And then, of course, there were slaves. And there was the massacre at times of Native Americans. And there's a lot of complication to that. But, dear friends, listen, listen. When Christians start putting all of their emphasis on the Christian vote, all of their emphasis on who gets into office, all of the emphasis on how we can force this bill through Congress, and all of the emphasis, all of the emphasis. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for Christian activity. I'm not saying the Christians shouldn't vote. I'm not saying the Christians shouldn't vote their conscience. I do. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't uh, uh, give their opinion. I do. And, and Christians are supposed to do this. Christians are also to pay taxes. Christians are to love their nation. Christians are to be good patriots. Christians are to be good citizens. 
But the minute Rome, and the Roman Christians were, Paul writes the book of Romans, pay your taxes, honor Caesar, honor the king, Peter says, be good citizens. But the minute Rome said, Caesar is Lord, Christians said, no. Our primary allegiance is to King Jesus, not to King Caesar. He is Lord, he is not. And if you need to kill us, kill us. We are not. They wouldn't be canceled. But dear friends, what happens when the church becomes so politicized, so politicized that all they think about is passing laws, passing bills, getting people elected, protesting, political action, forcing laws through, shouting, anger, rallies. What happens to the church? What gets forgotten? I'll tell you what gets forgotten. Our neighbors. Our neighbors. Who's my neighbor? Is he a believer? Have I prayed for him? Have I witnessed to him? Who's the guy at work? Who's the guy, who are my friends? Who's on the golf league? Who do I work out with in the gym? Have they come to know Christ? See, dear friends, a nation is not Christianized by laws. A nation is Christianized by evangelism. A nation isn't Christianized by elections. A nation is Christianized one by one by people getting saved, by people coming to Christ, and then voting their conscience. A nation isn't Christianized by the church being politi a political action committee. The nation is Christianized by churches making disciples, by churches being faithful to the word of God, and by churches proclaiming that the kingdom of God is much more important thing than the United States of America, and the kingdom of God and the United States of America are not the same things. Dear friends, I want to tell you something, and this has troubled me for years. If, if anything in the history of the world, if any two nations came close to a Christian nation, they would be, in my estimation, the Netherlands, when Abraham Kuyper, who is a great godly man, was the prime minister in the early 1900s, and Scotland, when Scotland was just infused with the gospel and, and the nation was transformed as a nation. But once the Netherlands and Scotland became the Christian nation where they imposed Christianity by law on their people. You know what's very troubling to me today? That it is proclaimed by many people that the two most secular nations in the world today are the Netherlands. Go to Amsterdam. They're the red light district. There's prostitutes everywhere. It's completely sanctioned. They're government employees, for goodness sakes. And Scotland. Dear friends, the kingdom of God is that which is a mysterious, powerful, glorious work of the Spirit of God. And it's at work right now. This kingdom is growing. This kingdom is developing. This kingdom, God is sovereignly calling together. And this kingdom one day, this kingdom one day is going to reign over all things when Christ comes. And this kingdom is going to be filled with so many people that God said, you can't, it'll be like the sands of the sea. Sure, it will be like the stars of heaven. And to be a citizen of this kingdom, to be a citizen of this kingdom is a great thing. Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? We're about to see somebody get their naturalization papers now. We're about to see a baptism. We're about to see somebody formally introduced and, and, and incorporated into the kingdom of God. Are you a member? Do you love? Is your first desire, your first instinct? the kingdom of God. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we ask and pray that you would help us. We pray that you would be with us. We pray that your hand would be upon us. And we pray, Father, we pray for our nation. We love our nation. And we know that our nation is turning from the roots and from the Christianized influence that so impacted this nation. And we're paying a heavy price for that. Father, we pray for our nation. We ask that you would please have mercy. We pray that you would save. We pray that you would send your spirit. We pray that you would come with power. We pray, Father, that you would turn our nation back to you. Father, we know that this United States of America is not the kingdom of God. And Father, we can pray for every nation that you would turn them to you. But Father, we thank you for the one true nation. We thank you for the kingdom. And we thank you that us and our black brothers and sisters and our Hispanic brothers and sisters and our Asian brothers and sisters and our brothers and sisters all around the world are one beautiful, huge, glorious kingdom. And one day our king is going to return and reclaim this world and the entire universe. And we thank you that by your grace, we are a part of this. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.